Welcome to Future Forecast, the podcast where we discuss leadership, technology, and sustainability with some of the most influential leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world. I'm your host, Isabel Ringness, and today we'll be talking about emotive AI, haptics, VR, bioidentity, basically all the technical reasons you should be super excited about our future. We're talking to the queen of tech. Shivi Jervis is a four-time award-winning futurologist, speaker, and broadcaster focusing on sustainable innovation. She reaches hundreds of thousands each month through her video editorial and global talks. Her research has earned 24 accolades, and she was recently voted one of Britain's Influencers of the Year for 2019. She's hosted a Discovery Channel documentary on the future of our cities and is currently authoring her first book. Welcome, Shivi. We're so happy you wanted to join us. Isabel, thank you for having me in your hot seat. Really excited to do this. We're thrilled that you're on it. So, Shivi, before we dive into technology, which I know that your CV witnesses that you're deeply passionate about, uh, I want our listeners to get to know your unique background better. During my uh, research, I discovered that you've been interested in reporting on technology since you were 14 years old in Bangalore, running around interviewing people in the emerging tech field. And the rumor has it that Bangalore is the Silicon Valley of India. I haven't had the privilege of going there yet, but uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about what it was like growing up there? Sure. So you're absolutely right. Spot on. Bangalore has sort of ended up being, to be honest, over the past two, three decades, this sort of hub in India and Asia for a lot of the big tech giants to kind of have their Asia or South Asia headquarters there. And so growing up, I'd say just on a personal level, I was always thinking around with gadgets and gizmos (laughs) in the house. uh, I'd grab my, my dad's at that point massive, unwieldy, sunny, you know, home camera system, the kind that you had to kind of hoist onto your shoulders at that point. You didn't have the mini DV cams you have today. Um, And I was fascinated with being the interviewer. I loved the idea of sort of unpicking people's stories, sort of really getting to understand what makes them tick. And then merging that with my love for all things digital and tech, which, you know, at at that point when I was 14 and I'm now in my 30s, it was still very much not a big thing, right? We still had uh, the dial-up modem and and mobile phones in India that came into play when I was 18. So it was sort of wanting to, I think, understand what was ahead, this kind of insatiable curiosity. And I used to get sort of get teased by my parents for being this very hyper curious kid with sort of two swinging pigtails walking around going, tell me what's next for this and tell me what's next for that. So, uh, you know, some kids that go what and how, I was one of those kids that asked why and how about everything. And so I would say that those roots for journalism and reporting really took seed when I was quite young. I started contributing to the youth supplement of newspapers, being the sort of young person around town, digging up some of the really fascinating business and tech stories, and then ended up being able to thankfully do that on broadcast as well as print and online as a reporter covering business and technology, where I was often the youngest person on the news desk, sometimes the only the only young woman at that point. And I really relished that because the idea was that everyone brings this completely different perspective to stories storytelling. And I thought, actually, as a reporter, if I can put my unique flair into it as best as I can, then that's fantastic. So I'd say that kind of curiosity and that insatiable intellectual kind of, uh, you know, thirst came from there. And then being in Bangalore really, really helped because 
some, some fascinating pioneers in big tech minds, you know, the founders of Wipro and other companies like that, who are very much accessible to me. And so I'd say it all started there. And then, you know, now in my 30s, I'd say I'm just as hyper and curious. <laughs> Oh, I can tell just from the the passion in your voice as you talk about it. I, I would have loved to know you as a child. And you obviously must have done a really good job as a reporter because later you won a global media fellowship to live and work in Montreal for a year. And then fast forward, you're one of the most influential people in technology in the world. And you have an incredibly engaging way of speaking about it, one that feels very inclusive to everyone and exciting to everyone. And you're able to... Thank you so much for that. I'm humbled by your comments, honestly. Oh, well, I mean, you've definitely earned them because I was I was doing my research and listening to a few talks. And it's it's really interesting to see how you are able to draw your audience in so that they can really see and relate to the future that awaits us. And um, and then you speak, or at least you, you have for a while, spoken about leadership 4.0, i.e. skills that leaders are going to need to thrive in the fourth industrial revolution. Now, what would you say are three of those top approaches or mindsets that business leaders will require? Sure. So I think there's some striking shifts that we're seeing, Isabel, in how leaders want to be perceived, how the public, the end consumers and their workforce want to perceive them and what we kind of expect of our leaders. And some of those state hierarchical structures of the past are simply not going to cut it anymore. So in a what we're calling a 4.0 world, which we're already in, I'd say the skills and behaviors needed in someone who is in a leadership role have changed. And, and it's also the construct of leadership, right? So usually it, it sort of previously felt like we're vesting it all in one person. But leadership to me now is more of a collective. It isn't just this one person who then gives directions and and sets the tone, but it has to be a lot flatter. I'd say big businesses need to take a leaf out of how startups operate, that very nimble, agile, democratic way in which, you know, I've been I've been fortunate to be privy through my advisory work to how a lot of startups have actually kicked things off from completely scratch, you know, kind of ground zero. And you do see one of the really strong elements, and this is one of the skills I think leaders today need to imbibe, is to be able to be incredibly accessible, sort of the the age of the accessible leader, where we need to democratize our access to influential leaders. And also, to make your organization a sort of destination employer, the average millennial or the Zen, you know, Gen Zer, which is 14 to 19 year olds who are going to be part of your workforce or contributing to it, their expectation is they don't want to have to have three levels of PAs to get through to you. They want to be able to see your email on LinkedIn, for you to reply on Twitter. And then if you're working within the organization, to actually have their views seen and heard by you. And so now I think anyone in a leadership capacity has to consider the wider health and vitality of their organization rather than just strategic goal setting. Uh, And they've also got to have, I'd say one of the top skills is, I kind of call it the T3 mindset. So it's the ethics of technology, you know, new talent and data transparency. If a CEO isn't well-versed or doesn't show that they have the knowledge and the really strong, robust understanding of what it means to establish trust from stakeholders and public, what it means to really deploy high data privacy, and 
to really understand how to actively put policies in place that tackle the ethical implications from new technologies, right from AI to data to mixed reality, then I think they're dead in the water because then they're not that kind of 4.0 digital leader. They're just more of a traditional C-suite leader. So when you start thinking of all of this with the complexity of the rapid new technologies that are coming into play, right, from nanotechnology uh, to, you know, high-speed hydrogen fluid flying cars, you know, suddenly what we see as a leader really changes and it becomes someone that we've got to be able to trust. So I'd say the first one would be the T3 mindset, having um, the ethics of technology, the public trust and the data transparency. I think another one, and I don't know if you'd agree with me, Isabel, is it's almost stripping it back to the basics. So I kind of call it the starter mindset. Um, so there's a Zen monk called Shunryu Suzuki, um, who I absolutely love this quote. And he says, in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities, but in the experts, there are but a few. And I think that's quite true because, you know, if you go back to think about when you started out, you know, really completely kind of fresh into a new role, perhaps even your first role, you came in there with, I suppose, in a way, not this massive set of assumptions. And so I think what this calls for is asking leaders to temporarily suspend the value that we place on long-term experience and to be able to question your own assumptions, your preconceived notions, and to say, hey, what if my strategies are actually based on uncontested thinking that could actually be quite flawed in the current and future context? Do they actually still hold true in the existing reality? Um, and I think they could think about thinking like a starter because a lot of beginners or founders are really getting down and dirty. They're rolling their sleeves up. They're taking input in from the entire team. And they're much, much more risk-friendly. I think we start out thinking, wow, everything's limitless. What are other possibilities if, if I didn't have re resources as a, as a limit? And you almost start, in a way, from that wished-for end state, you know, saying, if I could, for example, open up my organization's products to this new demographic or launch this sort of, you know, product or service, and then working backwards from that, then opening up this very imaginative clear path towards that rather than coming in jaded, having no one question your assumptions really and taking your same old, same old strategies forward and staying very, very risk averse, waiting for hundreds of business cases in order to convince you to use some of these new technologies. So I think definitely being much more bullish and thinking like a starter. Oh, definitely. And I, I actually believe that it was um, Microsoft or Amazon that... Uh, had a practice in which they published a, like a fake press release even before they started developing a product to be able to kind of put out a visionary product without having gone through all of the processes that usually stifle innovation on the way, such as expertise, uh, which you were also talking about. And and you you teased uh, my curiosity because you started mentioning mentioning a few technologies. And, and just in the interest of time, I really want to talk a little bit about tech because I've seen a few of your talks and, and there are a variety of points that you, that you make that I would like to dive deeper into because you talk about something called emotive AI, um, reverse engineering AI to become human. And you talk about digital avatars ready to tend to our every need faster and more accurate than a human ever could. What is this technology and what does this kind of technology mean and how will it affect us? 
So it's it, it almost can sound like something from the uncanny valley when you first hear about it. Exactly. But I, I'm, I'm such a research geek. So for the last four or five years, um, Isabel, I've been very fascinated by a particular strand of AI. And, and again, actually, even just going back to what AI is, we aren't actually currently experiencing true artificial intelligence. So we, we bandy the term around very, very synonymously with what's happening right now. But what we're experiencing now is AGI, artificial general intelligence, because true AI calls for a state of complete autonomy without a human necessarily intervening. But we're not there yet. And hopefully we won't get to ASI, which is the singularity, yeah. uh, you know, where, where the algorithm kind of overtakes the, you know, the ability of its creator, which I, I don't particularly believe in, in, in that as strongly as some people do. Uh, but So emotive AI is cognitive computing. What it is, is matching the kind of power of algorithms with understanding what humans believe in and how we actually think. So this is sort of AI with EQ. Uh, it's also called effective computing. And these are systems of softwares that can actually recognize and acknowledge and actually simulate emotion based on the processes of the human brain. And so it's, it's almost configuring this algorithm to have the same kind of neural networks that the human brain might have. And it, it kind of merges, you know, computer science, psychology, and cognitive science. Um, so it's absolutely fascinating. And an example of digital humans, like you correctly mentioned, is, uh, I mean, first of all, by sort of next year, uh, I often say in my talks that I believe we'll be talking unknowingly, in most cases, to bots more than we actually will to our partners or our spouses, which is a little bit nerve wracking. Oh, my God. Yeah, possibly a relief for some people. You know, I've been at events sometimes. Yeah, that doesn't bode too well for their relationships, and they're happier to talk to a bot more than their more than their partner. Um, but on on a more serious note, what this is effectively is about is putting a kind of human face on what previously was a faceless bot. So at the moment, I think a lot of us get pretty irked by text bots that pop up. You know, the bottom right of a website where I'll say, "Can I help you?" And you think, "Oh my God, I'm going to have this." context you know contextless conversation for the next 20 minutes and i'm going to come away without this bot having actually solved my problem but what um some people are developing are avatars with a human face and how this basically works is you have your device this could be your smartphone your laptop your tablet and essentially through either an organization brand or you know or e-commerce websites app their website the internet you know it could be any digital medium you activate one of these any time of day, 24-7, which for me is sort of the, the real kind of USB. If you enable the front-facing camera of your phone, what this system does is uses advanced facial recognition software to read micro-expressions on your face and accurately, and I've tried this stuff, detect your current mood and then say, oh, wow, okay, Isabel, Shivi, you're looking really stressed right now. Or I can tell you're agitated. I can tell you're in a rush. I can tell you look a bit kind of anxious. What can I find for you? And just imagine that on your screen, you've got a very lifelike human face. And for the purposes of transparency, they need to tell you this isn't an actual person. <laughs> OK, so you know that it's a digital avatar, a digital human. You ask it what you need. 
it has the ability to actually understand those inflections, intonations in your voice and really work out the nuances of conversation. Um, a little bit like a product that uh, Google launched a while ago, the assistant that could phone a restaurant on your behalf and actually make a booking. Um, so, so it does all of this in, first of all, you know, one to three hundredth in some cases, the speed of an actual person. And more importantly, even if you chose to deactivate the camera because you thought, I don't want this random algorithm analyzing my facial expressions, because I suppose I can feel a little bit nerve wracking for some people, even through just an audio system, it's been shown to sort of 88% of the time accurately capture what mood you're in, acknowledge that and say, how can I help you? What do you want? And so imagine that either you or I said, hey, can you troll through my bank account and find four months ago, I made a payment to some freelancer in this. I can't remember who it was or what I paid. Do I owe them anything else? And it has that computational power to dive in, find that in a matter of minutes or seconds rather than you having to do it manually or get an annoying customer service person on the phone who, you know, either doesn't get you what you want or is rude or is moody. And to me, this is kind of one example of emotive AI. This just sounds like a dream. I mean, are you telling me that this is going to be here next year? So it's already being trialed, actually. Uh, And so uh, just to say I have absolutely zero commercial connection or contact with this this one startup. But I mean, they're now quite established as a New Zealand-based company. What's their name? They're called Soul Humans. uh, Sorry, Soul Machines. Soul Machines. And they're the ones that inspire me the most. So apparently the guy that founded it uh, used to work on Avatar. And it's Soul as an S-O-U-L. I'm sure they'll appreciate the shout out. And they've developed something called a digital human. And if you look on their website, Isabel, I mean, these faces are absolutely lifelike. They're really friendly. They're really attractive. It, 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 It isn't creepy. Um, I think the only thing that a lot of these kind of companies have to work on is making sure that the voice doesn't sound like this, like, oh, hello, I am activating this. I will find this for you. You know, those kind of very stilted robotic voices. So these guys are working on that, to my knowledge, and kind of making it sound and look really relaxed. So at 11 o'clock at night, if you or I wanted to look up our company intranet, check something to do with our banking, uh, be able to actually find out how to do a particular return to an online retailer or confirm something about a flight booking. You won't have to wait for the confines of the nine to five through emotive AI tools. It's sort of always on. And, and this also could be used as a virtual assistant for each of us at work. But that's kind of one example of emotive AI. You've also got smart cars that have motion detection cameras that will read the micro movements on your face and track cognitive load to then give you a heads up and say, whoa, keep your eyes on the road, buddy. You were were in a near miss. You were about to have a collision. Um, And that was, in fact, um, uh, 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 shown at uh, CES, uh, I believe, earlier this year from a company called Vionier. You got X.AI, the assistant that reduces time we spend on scheduling meetings. Uh, you've got China's Xinhua news agency having a virtual anchor that looks like an actual person but is an AI avatar that can look and speak like an actual person and can report on news 24 hours a day. Um, And all of this stuff, the whole point of it is there are some caveats. There are some things we need to think about, like the ethics, the bias. And I do believe that it'll augment what we do rather than replace human to human interaction. But it's just fascinating to give a piece of software emotional, some sort of emotional quotient. You know, to me, that's fascinating. It is. It is completely fascinating. And and 
I find myself being a bit relieved that it's currently just software because I guess when this becomes hardware and it's basically, you know, impossible to identify a human from robot, that would be scary. And I'm also wondering, and I don't know if you if you know, but why are all these companies so obsessed with creating exactly human-like avatars or bots? I mean, couldn't they be like animals or, or something that we would find cute or helpful? Why, why the human look? Do you know? There, yeah, so I think if I had to hazard a guess, I'd say, first of all, there are some that do have um, a more, say, cartoon-like or caricature-type version. If you just imagine what, let's say, a cartoon or caricature version of you or myself would look like, um, some of them have that as the face of the avatar rather than an actual human. Um, and And what I think, from the kind of early demos that they've shown me and from actually trialing it with a number of organizations, um, what I believed was that people felt a little more at ease when the face in front of them looked a little more like them. Um, The other thing is that personally, Isabel, I would find, I suppose, let's say an animal or or, or a cartoon-like, let's say, features or things like that, To me, that might put me off just a little because it might feel a little bit childish or a little bit cutesy. Um, So I think it's very subjective. But one thing is, I think they want to make sure that there's uptake from both men and women. The other is they don't want it to, um, I suppose, feel a little bit too, you know, cutesy in some cases. Because sometimes you can get, you know, I can imagine my husband, uh, you know, he's a very manly man pulling up on his phone this this very kind of cutesy looking avatar my guess is he might feel a little bit embarrassed to be seen conversing with it and so that's just hazarding a guess about what people might want but you're quite right in saying there is this interesting component here of why should we be making these digital technologies so human-like in a way and i think one one really good use case for that is even as we're becoming more digital if these technologies don't start to actually Um, become a little more human-like, I think we'll actually use them less, particularly the more advanced versions where there isn't an instant use case or uptake for, for example, a digital human. So an average person might be a little bit hesitant to try it. Whereas if you say, hey, this this avatar, look, it's got a friendly face, it looks like you and me, and it's going to be able to find what you need in about 30 seconds, and you can access it at one in the morning, straight away, there's much more of an incentive. But I think that's probably more of a personal thing, because my sister, for instance, would probably prefer for it to have sort of let's say an animal avatar or that of a of that that of a, a cartoon or something like that you know and she's in her late 20s so it's not an age specific thing at all i think it's simply um subjective exactly and you'll probably be able to choose that yourself i would think so i mean that that shouldn't be so hard <laughs> Yeah, exactly. that is a good idea, actually, to say, who do you want to talk to? Which avatar do you feel most comfortable talking to? And if it's a friendly looking cat <laughs> uh, or if it's uh, a, a, a very chiseled looking man or, or it's a pleasant looking woman, you should be able to choose, I think. Yeah, that would be interesting to see what kind of uh, avatars the, the majority of the population chooses. Um, yeah, but, that's uh, a really good behavioral experiment, actually. <laughs> exactly. And, and another thing that you discuss is the combination of virtual reality and augmented reality and 
and haptics. Yeah. Basically being able to feel virtual objects while being encapsulated in a virtual world. And yep. I feel like VR has been a hype for quite some time and I don't know if it still is. Everyone was talking about it three years ago. I don't feel like everyone's talking about it now, but it is, you know, present most places. And I'm interested in hearing your take on the realization and the democratization of this technology. Because first, I mean, the combo of these technologies all of these three, I mean, what do they mean? Uh, what is the benefit? How are we going to use it? When is it going to be a reality? Um, by the way, I'm terrible at limiting my curiosity. The questions are just kind of running out, but you can attack them however oh, you want. Oh, that's absolutely fine. And most events I speak at, when we open it up to Q&A, we have a volley of questions. And actually, that's usually my favorite part of talks. And I once did an event with 2,000 people, and I wasn't expecting there to be a Q&A in that setup because it's a very large audience. And I we I think I kid you not we spent forty minutes on Q and A on stage, but it was utterly fascinating and so so fire away. So I guess Isabel, yeah, the the, the the it's very interesting you say that because the thing I tend to open with when I talk about mixed reality because for most people it's like what the heck is that and why should I care? Um, I often open with saying VR actually hasn't found its way into our homes. So in most cases, when I'll say to an audience, how many of you even have a VR headset? it's barely 10% of the audience, right? And so there aren't very many people that have it at home. So that's why for me, this is the future workplace rather than something that will infiltrate our homes. I think realistically, a headset like Microsoft HoloLens from a price point, as well as from a how do I even hook this up and use it and all the gadgetry that comes with it perspective isn't something that is easy to set up at home and there isn't an obvious reason to do it. So... I sort of talk about the immersive workplace where I think we will fuse three technologies. One is the headset. You put the headset on and essentially you have these immersive visualizations. The second is taking the headset out of the equation and saying augmented reality where your phone, which most of us always have on us, becomes the most powerful visual tool. So with AR, you hold the phone up and there's digital objects that are overlaid onto your real world. Uh, and actually, the IKEA, uh, there's an IKEA app, which is a great example of this, where you can drop a sofa anywhere in your home or your workspace, and it'll actually measure it up for you as well. And a lot of people don't even know about this one, but it's a fantastic app. So beyond kind of Pokemon Go and Harry Potter, you've also got commercial applications of this. But there's a third element that doesn't get spoken about much at all because it's still very much in a nascent stage, and that's touch reality. So it's replicating the sense of touch in a virtual world, which we simply weren't able to do before. So this could take the shape of either a very sleek haptic glove and haptics at its simplest form, are like the vibration alert on your phone, right? That's a form of haptics. So just force feedback or vibrations or, or that sort of friction that it creates. What it does in this world is tricks your brain into thinking there's an actually an object that you're grasping or manipulating or holding when there's actually just air. So it's really jaw-dropping stuff. So you can do this through, like I was saying, a glove. You also have a sleek little black box. Some guys call Ultra Haptics in Bristol. Again, no commercial connection to them. And they've developed something that is just jaw-dropping where you hold your hand over it and it pushes ultrasonic vibrations. I mean, Isabel, this is just mind-blowing stuff. Such that 
you essentially are moving your hand around and you can feel a sword, a ball, a glass, you know, the shape of an object, but there's nothing there. So it's recreating uh, the the texture, the shape, and what it feels like to touch something in midair through ultrasonic vibrations that are pushed against your skin. So that's pretty fascinating. You can't see me, but my, my jaw is uh, dropping. It sounds incredible. I need to try this. Yeah, so, so, so stuff like this where you see use cases that, for example, you know, I travel to innovation labs all over the world and I talk to some of the really sort of basement founders, as I call them, the real mavericks. Those are my favorite people to talk to because they're developing this stuff and, you know, and not always on big budgets. And I'm seeing these things actually be rolled out in the construction industry, in engineering, by governments. It, it's, it's actually the best kept secret because a lot of it's been used in defense as well, for example, for defense training. Uh, heavily in medicine to train surgeons, for example. And actually quite a fun application is for sports fans to be able to put on a HoloLens and have a sort of, it's not a true hologram, but what looks like a hologram appear in front of you of your favorite NFL player right there with all the stats and figures, but then to also be able to interact with that. So, you know, really giving you an immersive experience as a consumer as well as in, at work. But I think at work, what it'll do is you rock up to work and then you'll have literally a bit Tom Cruise minority report-esque virtual screens without the need for hardware. You could have 12 screens one day and two the other. You decide how many you want, but you're actually going to be able to touch them without losing that tactile sensation we all crave. I mean, we're, at the end of it, I think what people miss is if tech is clinical and cold, I think it's utterly pointless. That's just my view, right? So we still crave human-to-human contact. We still need, you know, skin-on-skin, that tactile sensation. And so the kind of stuff I try and find, Isabel, tends to be the stuff that will hopefully keep those human elements in the equation versus stripping it out. And so you would be able to actually feel as though you are pressing buttons, you are manipulating things, you are touching objects. But it doesn't mean those objects are always there. And you could still have your usual worktop desktop interface, but it's this stuff will sort of just be an add-on rather than completely replace it. But it's a way to you know, be able to, for example, onboard an employee because a lot of companies have trouble in that process of, you know, inducting and orientating a new employee and new talent, upskilling, which is a massive issue when it comes to the digital sector right now. Huge amount of employees that don't have the digital skills necessary to respond to the fourth industrial revolution and to actually recruit. You know, it's being used by uh, the UK as well as the US Army to recruit and show people what it would be like to actually experience a day in the life of. So to me, this is more about talent, workforce, the workplace of the future and things like that. And how long until this will be an actual part of our lives, do you think? Yeah. So so like I said, some of this is being trialed quite successfully with some pretty savvy organizations. You've got Verizon, you've got Walmart, Costa Coffee that are actually already deploying it as part of their training. And there's actually quite a lot online about what Verizon are doing to train their employees on site, how Walmart are using it. But there are also the smaller organizations that now don't have such a big price point hindrance because you could buy a Microsoft HoloLens and effectively recreate some of this stuff. You could buy that black box device from Ultra Haptics and and suddenly your setup, you know, isn't that expensive. It's under, let's say, 2,000 euros or pounds. 
And hence, it isn't breaking the bank. You only really need kind of one or two of those, you know, per office. And that's really not a massive investment. So um, it is actually quite surprising to me how many organizations are using this. This is a real estate company that I've just advised who are deploying it now. There's a housing development company that are using this to pitch for really, really critical social housing projects. And they've seen an 80% surge in buy-in from investors simply by allowing that person to have an immersive walkthrough and bringing that emotionality back into, for example, a blueprint or an architect's plan. So it is actually being rolled out. It's just not extensively rolled out. And, and it is more manufacturing, engineering, automotive, I believe that some consumer applications of this we will see in the next year. But I think the first one we'll see is automotive because there are already cars that are creating a touchless dashboard and interface. So you don't have to take your eyes off the road. You can keep your eyes on the road and you're essentially manipulating buttons that just don't exist at all. And you're turning them, but you're not actually touching anything. And so there's no distraction from the road. You know, there's heads up displays where your entire map is projected right in front of you rather than having to turn your head to look at an iPhone, Google Maps or a sat nav. So consumer applications, I'd say about a year away, a lot of the other industrial and commercial applications are already very much underway. You only have to sort of have a quick look at where the HoloLens, for example, which is my favorite device, is being used on used in industry is to see that there are some very, very real uh, impacts of this already being rolled out. So I think companies don't have an excuse not to do this. Another thing that I wanted to discuss is uh, security, our identities online, bio-identity, as uh, some coin it. I'm super curious about how this space is going to evolve and what businesses should be exploring to ensure our online privacy and security. And uh, I know that you've been speaking about epidermal electronics, basically a digital tattoo laminated to the skin. And you've also mentioned ECG biometric, which basically uses our heartbeat to verify our identities. Right. And this is one of the many ways to identify ourselves using biology. Crazy to think about for some, maybe. And in simple terms, what are these technologies? Uh, how do you see them applied today? And um, how do you think these will be used in the future? Sure. So I'd say maybe to kind of as, as a starting reference point, as something to kind of hold on to, if you are using your fingerprint to unlock your phone or face ID to do the same thing, you're already using the first generation version of what we call biosecurity. So that's biometrics. Using your unique biological markers or something completely specific to you. So you, Isabel, wouldn't have the same biological identity as me, Shivi Jervis, and, and vice versa with someone else. So what this effectively is doing is saying that rather than first generation security, which relies on something you know, a username and a password, or something you have. For example, in the UK, we've got card readers that our banks send us, right? Or perhaps even uh, needing to have your device to hand so you get that verification code and you plug that in online. And I'm like, well, anyone could have my phone and do that. So that's really quite, you know, that's really not very clever. We need to move from that to second generation biometrics, which effectively is using more complex aspects of biology, like your veins, 
your subdermal vein patterns under your skin because fingerprints, believe it or not, can be spoofed using a gummy bear. I mean, that is absolutely, you know, those Haribo gummy bears that we all have. And face ID can also be spoofed. A lot of white hat hackers, ethical hackers who are friends of mine have proved that time and time again. So we've got to get a little more intricate. And so subdermal vein patterns under your skin, you've got, for example, portable uh, vein sensors that are actually already being used by a couple of banks in the UK that would allow you to wave your hand on top of it, it essentially sends a sensor signal that reflects off the hemoglobin in your blood to look at the vein structure. And in order to do all of this, you obviously first have to establish a biometric signature, right? So the same way you set a password for the first time and the system has to match it to that, you effectively create a vein signature or a heartbeat signature, and the system then has to match it to that. Uh, the heartbeat one, people are really fascinated by. Each of us have our own unique ECG reading, which is kind of the unique electrical signals of an individual's heartbeat. So not completely the same as a heartbeat pattern. It includes heartbeat patterns, but it actually factors in a lot more than that. This is already being used in the health industry for medical grade readings. So what some people are doing is creating an algorithm, uh, in one case, some companies called Be Secure, who released something called a heart key algorithm, and some guys called NIMI, NYMI, who've got a band that is looks like a Fitbit and can detect this in real time. And what this does is this signature identifies us through this band or through our smartwatches and essentially will tell the system that you are you. But also, Isabel, recently I found out that it can actually be embedded into everyday items like your car steering wheel even. So you could you could effectively embed it into an existing wearable or steering wheel or even in, and this is where I think we'll see uptake. If we can embed this into our smartphones and have that built in, that's when it starts to get really useful because we don't necessarily want to have one more item to carry with us. We also don't want to have any security implications from that. So I think right now, again, this is still a more business case for this, and it's being used by governments, it's being used by defense companies, where security is absolutely critical. It's actually being used for building security in a, quite a few organizations and industries. It's just something we don't all know about. But to see the commercial implications of this for consumers, I'd say we're probably two years off because we've got to got to be really careful about the security implications of who's storing this data, how is it being accessed, how accurate is it. But thus far in the stuff that I've trialed and tested, I'd say that it's very, very promising. I mean, it's just fascinating. And it, and, and it does bring a few thoughts to mind because I, I've put an RFID chip into my hand. Right. Um, and it's gotten a lot of attention, I would say, for what it is. It's it's basically nothing. It doesn't work very well or anything like that. But, you know, you could, you could scan it with your phone and my LinkedIn profile shows up. Very simple. But a lot of people are either extremely curious and positive to it or they're very, very skeptical and negative to it. And when you're talking about these different bio identities or biometrics, which which you are completely right, we do use that already with facial recognition and iris recognition and finger recognition yeah. today. I mean, I would think that a large part of the population might resist mm -hmm. where this is going. Do you have any sense of what the kind of general take on this is today? Are people open to this kind of development? So... I would say if I had to gauge it from 
the people that respond when I put this stuff out on social media, or most importantly, um, when I speak at events. And I, and I actually have lots of people coming up and going, ooh, that was interesting. And people are quite honest, right? People will let you know if they think something is just too far-fetched or it's too daunting. And you're quite right. They're, 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 I do see these different kind of splits. There's some people who are like, I want to try any of this stuff. If, if, if it'll make my life easier, faster, more efficient, it'll save me money, it'll be better for my health then there is suddenly you start to see much more of a tendency to be a little more open to trying some of this stuff. So I think what I find is when I explain to people, let's say at an event, that, hey, if I simply said to you, there could be a device that looks as simple as a Fitbit, or it's more more, more importantly, embedded into your Fitbit, or it's already on your Apple Watch, or it's already on your smartphone, but it's effectively, instead of your fingerprint, you know, you scan it over, let's say, your wrist, or you hold it there for X amount of seconds, it's a much more reliable measure. And it means that someone could not hack into your account. So there's X amount less probability that someone could actually hack your system and access what everyone's petrified about, their camera roll, their passwords, their banking apps. Um, you know, your kind of whole world lives on your little smartphone in a way. And it, if it's compromised, there's so much damage that can be done financially and to your reputation, I think. And so people are quite nervous of that. Then you start to see people thinking, oh, that's actually quite straightforward. Right. So I don't have to buy some snazzy 300 pound gadget. I'm like, nope. Uh, they're like, okay, do I have to, you know, understand the technology behind it? Or do I need to be technical to use it? In most cases, no. So I think when you sort of take those barriers down, suddenly people are like, let me at it. You know, if it's going to keep me safer online and protect my digital identity and also protect my business, for example, I run my own consultancy and I wouldn't want that data to be compromised. A lot of startups and SMEs, you know, 18 months, within 18 months of having even a small data breach, they suffer, it's been shown, a significant loss to revenue streams. Some even go out of business. So I think so long as you sort of make it frictionless to use, and that's where I think right now it's being used commercially, once you see that it can be incorporated into your smartphone, into your Fitbit, into your smartwatch, that's when I think people will be far more relaxed about it. And you you kind of only need a little bit of critical mass, really, for people to start buying into it. You know, Because some of the stuff we use today, we're still you still saw a lot of reluctance from people to get on board even two years ago. And, and, and that stuff is now completely mainstream. So I think like a lot of these new technologies, if people are mindful about making the benefit very clear, making sure the data is protected at the heart of it all, because people are now thankfully much more digitally aware of that and where the data is going and allow the kind of method of usage to be not super technical so that it doesn't completely you know alienate a huge part of the population that aren't technical or don't want to necessarily have to hook five six things up um, then I think you've got kind of a winner there so that's why something like this next generation version of cybersecurity I think is is more a little bit kind of into the future two three years whereas some of the other stuff especially emotive ai mixed reality and things like that are much more near term so this kind of stuff just just blows my mind yeah me too and, and talking about it i start thinking about more invasive kinds of technology and specifically maybe the uh recent company that elon musk 
acquired, I believe it was two years ago, Neuralink, where his mission is to embed technology and wires or whatever it is uh, into our brains so that we'll be able to communicate online with no digital interface or object. What are your thoughts on that? That, I I, want to say that doesn't actually blow my mind, that that actually freaks me out. So I have to say, (laughs) even as a futurologist, where I'm I'm kind of primed to be very relaxed, very, very risk-friendly. And I mean, you know, I, for my documentaries and for my video stuff, I have tried all sorts of stuff on myself, um, right from headbands that send electrical signals to zap your brain and all that stuff. And this still, I think, makes me significantly uncomfortable. Saying that we've got a direct brain-to-machine interface um, that will essentially, uh, through ultra-high bandwidth, kind of almost merge humans with AI is a bit for me, that's going a bit too far, and it, it makes me quite uneasy. A, because I think you'd need to prove to me, first of all, there isn't a side effect to my health from using that sort of device. That would be, I think, a fear some people have, similarly with embeddables and impl- and, and, and injectables and things like that. Um, and, and secondly, also, you've got these, um, you know, he's talking about really minuscule, flexible electrode threads that are then implanted into the human brain, recording the electrical signals, transmitting this information outside the body. And he's talking about first tests on humans by the end of sort of next year, unless it was in a medical environment. And the purpose of it was purely, for example, I believe people who have, uh, you know, a spinal injury or a devastating injury to their brain or their back. I can understand that for people suffering from paralysis, this sort of implanted device helps them, for example, control a phone or computer. That to me makes much more sex a sense because it's a tech for good element there. But if he's talking now about enhancing human potential, kind of almost creating a hyper personalized, a hyper version of our brains and enhancing our own brains, that to me starts to go into the uncanny valley. And it does make me quite uneasy because he wants to talk about superhuman intelligence. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, to, to almost he thinks this will mitigate the existential threat of AI. Um, To me, I'm not convinced by that uh, because it just feels like, A, people are not going to be that receptive about actually having this implanted. And we're talking about neurosurgical robots, apparently, that can do a vast amount of threads like per minute. And they go on about each thread of these is smaller than uh, one-tenth the size of a human hair, (laughs) right? Um, And it's a small implantable device. To me, that's still just nerve-wracking. Why would I put myself in that position? I don't see a clear enough use case for me to then be able to do this myself, for example. So to me, that stuff is um, Elon Musk's sort of rhetoric about how we need to be a bit more cyborg-esque in order to survive (laughs) (laughs) and I'm like really okay that stuff is is actually just freaking me out and and I think there was a a tech commentator recently who said that this could be actually as safe and painless as laser eye surgery and I'm thinking well a I'm not sure of that b even laser eye surgery is, is, is a little bit nerve-wracking. You know, I've had that done. And it's something you really have to think about and consider. So to, to me, that is going one step too far. Well, uh, I'm glad I heard your thoughts on that because uh, I, even as a as a futurist, you're skeptical to that kind of development. I think that's sobering for many to hear. But I will say I'm fascinated by it. And 
You know, it's kind of what you've said uh, before in the podcast that a lot of the things that we thought were completely crazy and unimaginable just, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago are standard normal today. And who knows what uh, the world will look like in 40 years. But unfortunately, uh, we have to wrap up. I've uh, already taken too much time, but you are literally the most interesting guest ever. (laughs) I love talking about technology with someone as passionate as you. We have three quick questions before I let you go. Um, If you could give your 20-year-old self a piece of advice, what would it be? Um, Don't worry too much about what people have to say or what they think of you. Excellent advice. Uh, What's your favorite podcast or book or anything else that you would like to recommend? (laughs) Well, this is going to sound like I'm sucking up to you, but I love your podcast. Have you been listening to it? I have actually. I can actually quote you, quote you excerpts from what people have said. So I'm not bullshitting you. Oh, that's so cool. So I'd say you're absolutely such such a good interviewer because it feels so much like a dialogue whereas a lot of podcasts it feels quite stilted and it feels very much like uh, a very engineered Q&A and this one just feels so much like we're sat down we're having coffee and we're just having happen to be having a fascinating chat about a certain subject so ironically I mean I'd say you were top of my list there is one by the MIT uh, the the name escapes me but it it focuses a lot on tech for good and, and that really lights my fire it's kind of the social impact of new technologies Uh, that's another one that I do listen to quite often and the name escapes me thank you so much though uh, Shivi that was really kind of you to say and I'm uh, humbled Uh, I I find it incredible that you've uh, listened to it so much that's really nice where should people go to follow you so on Twitter I'm at Shivi Jervis I am not on Instagram Isabel whoa oh no conscious decision I am fiercely private about my personal life Uh, and with Instagram I just didn't feel that apart from taking photos of myself you know on different stages in different parts of the world I wasn't quite sure what I was going to put on there and and I I'm not one of those people who take selfies you rarely find a selfie of me in my camera roll um so I'm just quite a private person despite the fact that I do a lot of broadcasting and I'm on stage um so at Shivy Jervis and my website's shivyjervis.com and I'd say LinkedIn hit me up on LinkedIn and I always reply to people personally um so it's very easy to get hold of me this comes back to what I said about the accessible leader you know to to allow people to to break through and get in touch with you without having to go through uh, four different uh, levels of executive BAs (laughs) that's uh, that's awesome Uh, be careful what you wish for suddenly you'll have a bunch of Norwegians and Scandinavians reaching out but uh, we can maybe see you live as well uh, when you come to Oslo Business Forum in September and I'm so excited for that because I can't wait to sit down with you and uh, discuss even more thank you so much for joining us Shivi this has been so interesting and inspiring And thank you for being such a fantastic host. Oh, of course. You're listening to Future Forecast. If you like this podcast, please share it with someone you think may like it. And give me a shout out on Instagram, Isabel Ringness, if you have recommendations as to who we should speak to or any specific topics you want us to discuss. Talk to you in two weeks.